thank you for worshiping with us last weekend on Resurrection Weekend. We had an incredible weekend of worship. We saw God move. And in fact, on Wednesday night in our church fellowship, we saw a student be obedient to Christ and we baptized him. So praise the Lord for that. But thank you again for worshiping with us today. Uh, Let me ask you in your personal life, have you ever borrowed anything from someone? And if you said yes, let me ask you this. Did you return the item? And has anyone ever borrowed anything from you? And if so, did that person return it to you? As I think back in my life, I had a drum kit one time and I let someone borrow it. I've never seen it since. Uh, I let someone borrow some golf clubs I had one time because they were going on a trip with their son and needed some golf clubs. I, I loaned them to them and I've never seen those golf clubs again to this day. Well, as we continue in the sermon series on borrowed, we know this, that Jesus borrowed an old rugged cross. He borrowed a new tomb, but today he's going to borrow a noble animal. But the good news about Jesus is whatever he borrowed, he always gave it back. And so as you take God's word today, I want to invite your attention. Luke's gospel, chapter 19, an incredible story about the triumphal entry of Christ. But I want to talk about this in the sense that he borrowed an animal and he gave it back. So Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, you find your place in God's word and you follow along as I read. The Bible says when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those of you who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples." He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. All four gospel writers tell this story about the triumphal entry of Christ. Understand the context. It's in the city of Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover. Uh, Many scholars believe at the Passover, there would have been over a million people in the city of Jerusalem. It would have been packed with people. Now, trying to understand that in our day, imagine before COVID or even before online shopping, you remember what stores were like on Black Friday. They were packed. It was crazy. The same scene would have happened in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going to the city of Jerusalem. You have to understand, understand the context. Jesus riding a donkey is coming in from the east. Coming in from the west is another guy named Pontius Pilate. He's not riding a donkey. He's riding a war horse. But coming in from the east is Jesus in the eyes of people. He did not look like a king, but coming in from the west was Pontius Pilate on this war horse. He did look like a king. Well, to make sure you understand God's word, but you also understand my convictions, there was one king that day who was entering the city of Jerusalem, and it wasn't, he wasn't riding a war horse. He was riding a donkey, and it was going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into Jerusalem that day as a king, and he's coming again as king of kings and lord of lords. So it was the Passover. 
Also understand the context it was on the Mount of Olives. One of my favorite places in the Holy Land is the Mount of Olives because it's overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It's a two and a half mile mountain range. Again, that's towering over the city of Jerusalem. There is a point that stands about 200 feet above the Temple Mount. And as you look down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, it is covered with graves and olive trees. Two, two times a year, when people put prayer requests on the Western Wall, they will remove those prayer requests two times a year and they will bury them on the Mount of Olives. It is a sacred place in Israel. And again, I love to stand there overlooking the city of Jerusalem. When you think about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, many things in his life, many things he said happened on the Mount of Olives. Let me give you some of those so you'll understand the biblical significance of this place. One is he predicted Peter's denial on the Mount of Olives. Another thing as we see was the triumphal entry that happened on the Mount of Olives as he was going into Jerusalem. We also know on the Mount of Olives that he sought the Father's will in a place called Gethsemane. At the base of the Mount of Olives, he was in that garden with his disciples, and he prayed for the Father's will to be done and not his significant place. We know in Matthew 24 and 25, he gave a prophetic utterance on the Mount of Olives. And then in Acts chapter 1, we know after he was crucified and raised from the dead, he ascended back into heaven from the Mount of Olives, a place called Olivet. It is a significant place in the Holy Land. Now, as you think about this, the Bible says here, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Where did he come from? He came from Jericho. We see that in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. He had been in the city of Jericho. He was passing through on his way up to Jerusalem. Jericho was a significant place because he met a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. We know something about this story. We learned it in vacation Bible school, Sunday school as a kid. We know that Zacchaeus was a small man in stature, not very large. But we know this about this man. He was a chief tax collector, and he was very, very rich. What does that mean? He had climbed the ladder of success. He had a great position, but also he had plenty of money in his life. Now, now many people, maybe you watching today would say, hey, if I could get to the top of my career and if I had plenty of money, life would be set. But when you think about Zacchaeus, again, great position, plenty of money, but he was empty. There was this void in his life that his career and his money could not fill in his life. And so he had heard about Jesus. He understood that Jesus was going to be passing through Jericho, and he wanted to see him with his own eyes. And so he goes that day, the parade is lined up, Jesus is going to be coming through, being small in stature. He could not see Jesus because of the crowd. There's a great warning there for you and me. People are still seeking Jesus, but you and I should never, never be a part of the crowd. We don't need to hinder people from seeing Jesus. We need to help people see Jesus. Well, Zacchaeus was determined he couldn't see him because of the crowd, but, but he runs on ahead. He climbs a sycamore tree, and Jesus is coming down the Jericho Road. He stops where Zacchaeus is at. He looks up into the tree, and he called this man by his name and gave him this profound spiritual invitation. Come down out of the tree. I want to go to your house. Ultimately, I want to change your life. The void that career and money will not fill, I'm going to change your life and fill that void. And the good news that day in the city of Jericho, Jesus changed that man's life. How do you know that? Well, there was evidence of that. He wanted to give away his money. He wanted to restore all those that he had taken advantage of. He wanted to make right. You just don't do that on the flesh. You do that because Jesus has changed your life. And as you have come to Christ, understand there should be spiritual evidence in your life that Jesus Christ has changed you.
So, so let me ask you a couple of personal questions. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Has he filled the void that's in your life that only he can? But also let me ask you this. Is there spiritual evidence? Can other people see the difference Jesus is making in your life? Because if you know Christ, there should be evidence that your life has changed in him. And so why was he going through Jericho up to Jerusalem? Why? He was going there again to give his life on a cross and to die for you and for me. Every single one of us, we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can't save ourselves. The Son of God was going to Jerusalem to die at a place called Golgotha, be buried in a tomb and raised on the third day. He was giving his life for you and for me. That's the triumphal entry story. Now, as we think about this story, we also have significant animals in this story, a noble animal, and it's a donkey. It's a colt. And, and this is not by accident. It's very profound. We're going to see in just a moment prophesied in Zechariah. But what is the significance of a colt, a donkey? Let, let me give you three words. They're not on the outline, but they're important for you to understand the context of this biblical story. When you think about a colt, it was a sign of peace. Again, he wasn't coming on a war horse. He was coming on a donkey. That was a sign of peace. The prince of peace was coming into the city of Jerusalem. And I say this, if your life is chaotic and chaos right now, Jesus Christ is the prince of peace. He can change the chaos and the confusion of your life and give you peace when you trust him. Uh, the colt symbolized peace. It also was a, an animal of service, the word service. When you think about this idea of service, it, it would bear the burdens, the weight of, of some situation. Jesus came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to bear your burdens and my burdens. He took your sin debt and my sin and paid for it on a cross. He bore your burden and my burden. He came to serve. The third word is sacred. This donkey was a sacred animal because it was without blemish. We'll understand that in the story. When, a, when an animal was sacrificed in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, it had to be an animal without blemish. This animal had never been sat upon. Jesus is going to be the first one. It was an animal without blemish. It was a noble animal. It was a donkey. Now, as we look here in Luke chapter 19, I want to give you these insights. I encourage you to write these down. Uh, because they relate to your life and my life very, very specifically today. And you say, what are those? Number one, Jesus is still calling people. Now, I just want to give you this statement. When Jesus Christ calls you in your life, and we'll talk about some of those calls in just a moment, that call is not up for negotiation or debate. Obey him. If he calls you, don't negotiate with him, obey him. There, there are places you're going to be able to negotiate, but it's not the call of Jesus. Uh, last Sunday after Easter worship, Angie and I were going home, and uh, we've moved into our new house. We don't have a lot of food there, so we needed something to eat, so we stopped by KFC on the way home. We knew that they had a $5 deal that we could get, so both of us could eat for $10. We liked that. And so we pulled up to the little speaker, and we made our order, and then we pull up to the window, and the guy comes to the window, and he says, hey, the chicken that comes with this meal is not going to be ready until four minutes. Are you willing to wait? And he said, if you're not willing to wait, I can make a deal with you. I'll give you a leg and a thigh for that piece of chicken. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I will do. Uh, I don't really want to wait four minutes, but if you'll give me three chicken legs, I'll call it a day and we'll pull on out. He said, well, I can't give you three. I only give you two. And I said, well, it looks like we're going to wait about four minutes then. But I said, I want to make this offer to you one more time. I said, if you'll give me three chicken legs, we'll say it's a deal and we're going to leave. He said, you got a deal. And so you can negotiate at KFC, but you can't negotiate with Jesus. If he calls you, obey him. Two statements I want to ask you. 
Who is Jesus calling you to be? And what is Jesus calling you to do? Here's what I know about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still calling people to salvation. He's still calling people to discipleship. He's still calling people to ministry. He's still calling people to affiliate with a local church. We need other believers in our lives. He is still calling people. Who is he calling you to be and what is he calling you to do? Look at these two statements from, I want to give you from Luke chapter 19. Number one is the sovereignty of Jesus. When I look at this text, I go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The Bible says here, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Even Zechariah, the prophet, predicted about what Jesus was going to do in Luke 19, this triumphal entry. He was coming into Jerusalem on a colt, a donkey. You see the sovereignty of Jesus. Go back to Luke 19. It said, when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He drew near to the mount that is called Olivet. And he, he's going to have a conversation with a couple of his disciples. And he's going to give them directions. And here's what he said to his disciples. I want you to do this. I want you to go into the village in front of you. Jesus knew the village that he wanted them to go to. He says, on entering, you're going to find a colt that's tied. He knew about the colt, and he knew that the colt was going to be tied. And then he says this, no one has ever sat on this colt. He knew everything about the village, about the colt, and the situation with the colt. That is the sovereignty of Jesus. He knows everything. He goes on to say this, and he says, no one has ever sat on it, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. That's a legitimate answer from Jesus. And then so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. The sovereignty of Jesus, he knows everything. Here's the significance of that. Jesus in his providence and sovereignty was, was orchestrating the lives of these two disciples to go into this village, find this colt, and then bring it to Jesus. Only Jesus could have done that. I want to tell you a story. I could share many stories with you. I want to share this story with you that talks about how E. Horcus raised lives. Many years ago, in fact, in the year 2000, I had been asked, I was a student at Southern Seminary, to, to represent Southern Seminary at Amsterdam 2000. It was a gathering of believers and pastors, literally from all over the world, with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. So we went, and I went to Amsterdam and attended Amsterdam 2000. We were there for almost two weeks. On, and we were staying in a place called the Rye Auditorium. We had box meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Day seven or so, uh, I was just worn out and weary with these box meals. Someone in the conference said, way down the road, there is a McDonald's. I mean, that got my attention, got my ears open, my eyes open. And I said, I'm just really tired of these box meals. I'm going to break out. I'm going to McDonald's because I'm having a Big Mac attack. And so I need two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on the sesame seed bun. I need a Big Mac, maybe two Big Macs at this point. So I leave the Rye Auditorium. I go down the street, sure as anything. I see the Golden Arches. There is McDonald's. I am super, super excited. I walk in and I realize not only has God spoken to me, there are other attendees at the conference. They've had a Big Mac attack too. They're there as well. 
And so we're standing in line talking about the box lunches and the meals, but also now we're going to get to get a Big Mac together. And they're standing in line. I'm standing there at McDonald's, and there's a lady from Amsterdam standing near me. I strike up a conversation with her and talk to her about she lived in Amsterdam. What did she do there? Those things. She said, where are you from? I told her I was from Kentucky. And she says, what are you doing in Amsterdam? And I said, well, I'm down at the Rye Auditorium. Many other people there as well. Dr. Billy Graham has brought in pastors and believers from around the world, and we're talking about evangelism and sharing the gospel with people. And this lady in Amsterdam, McDonald, she said, my mother has talked to me about Dr. Billy Graham. And she said, my grandmother loves to listen to Dr. Billy Graham preach. And, and so she talked about the conference, and I talked about that. And then here's the interesting. We talked about spiritual issues and about her life. And then she was willing to sit down with myself, and I invited another conference attendee to sit down with us and talk about Dr. Billy Graham and the gospel and her life. And right there in Amsterdam, that lady that day with tears streaming down her face surrendered her life and gave her heart to Jesus Christ in a McDonald's in Amsterdam. That morning in the conference session, I was sitting on the front row. I met a pastor that morning who had planted a church in Amsterdam. And I was super excited because I said to this lady now at McDonald's, this is going to sound creepy, but I really don't want it to be that way. I met a pastor this morning, planted a church in Amsterdam. If you would give me your personal contact information, I'd love to go back and give that to him. He could follow up with you and help you take the next steps in your relationship to Christ. She took a McDonald's napkin, she wrote her address down, and I went back to the Rye Auditorium, met this pastor, told him about the situation at McDonald's, and gave him her contact information, and he said, this is amazing, she actually lives in the area where we have planted this church. Understand this, only God could have orchestrated that. To take somebody from Kentucky... At the Rye Auditorium, a Big Mac attack, finding McDonald's, meeting a lady who had heard about Dr. Billy Graham, who was open to the gospel, gave her life to Christ, and lived in the area where this church was planted. That is the sovereignty of Jesus in life. Now, when you think about this story, and again, they're, they're getting this cult. The owners come out and say, what in the world are you doing? And, and they say, well, the Lord has need of it. That, that worked in that day. I, I just encourage you, be careful about trying this. You see a bicycle in a yard somewhere. You go get it. The owners come out, and the owners say, hey, what in the world are you doing? And you say this, the Lord has need of it. It may not go like it happened in this story. Because if you try to do that in our city, we very well may need to start a jail ministry after that because they're probably going to call the police on you. But in this story, Jesus knew every, every detail about this cult and what his disciples are going to see, what the owners are going to say. And here's what you say, the Lord has need of it. That's the sovereignty of Jesus. Number two, the humility of Jesus. When you look at the story again, he's coming into Jerusalem, not riding a war horse. He's riding a donkey. He's come to bring peace. He's the prince of peace. And please understand, when you think about Jesus coming into the holy city of Jerusalem, riding a donkey, I want you to lean in and get this statement I'm getting ready to make because it is extremely important, and here's what it is. The greatness of your life isn't determined by the size of your animal. It's determined by the surrender of your life. Don't miss that. The greatness of your life isn't determined by the size of your animal. It's determined by the surrender of your heart and your life. 
Jesus Christ was surrendered to do the Father's will. It wasn't simply about a donkey. That was a sign of humility. It was the surrender of his life and his heart to die on a cross and be buried in a tomb and raised on the third day. That is the humility of Christ. Now, understand this. When he came into Jerusalem that day, I believe he went through the eastern gate that day on a donkey. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, and I want you to see this picture, you're going to see a picture of the eastern gate. And you're going to be able to stand on the Mount of Olives, and you're going to be able to see that. And there is the eastern gate to this day. Interesting enough, as you see that picture, it is closed. You cannot go through the eastern gate today. But here's what the Bible says in Ezekiel 44, and here's what's going to happen. Jesus Christ died on a cross, raised from the grave, ascended back to the Father. One day he's coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords. And please understand this, he is going through that eastern gate when he comes again. Now, now many people look at it and say, well, when you look at the Kidron Valley and you see all around the Mount of Olives, there are olive trees and graves everywhere. How's he going to get around those graves? Understand this. He walked out of a tomb on Sunday morning because the stone had been rolled away. And when he goes through those gates, listen, he's not going to have any problem getting through those graves to go through that gate. Why? Because that is the sovereignty of Christ. So let me ask you again, how is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he called these two disciples to go into this village, how is he calling you today? Salvation, discipleship, ministry, church membership, what is he calling you to do and who is he calling you to be? He is still calling people. Look at the second truth I want you to see here. Jesus is still seeking worshipers. As you and I think about this story in Luke 19, we need to think about, is he pleased with the way we worship him? As you think about this story again, understand the context. He is going to get on this colt. They're going to set him upon it. And as he is on this colt, they start going down the Mount of Olives. And as he's going down the Mount of Olives, they, they're throwing their cloaks aside. They're at palm branches, shouting Hosanna to save us or save me is the meaning of that. And it says, and the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they're praising him. They're worshiping him because of all the mighty works that he has been able to do in life. Worship is taking place. You also have to realize there are some people in the crowd that day. They're not impressed with Jesus because they were looking for a political messiah. Not someone who was going to bring redemption to their souls. They were looking for someone who was going to set them free politically. So Jesus simply did not meet their expectations. He did not do what they thought he should do. Now, let me ask you this. When you look at your life and you think about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you say to him, Lord, I need a job. I want you to heal this relationship. I want you to get us out of this financial mess. The challenge is going to be how do you respond to Jesus when he doesn't do what you think he should do? That's the story in Luke 19. There was a group of people there. Jesus did not meet and do what they thought he should do. Now, when you think about worship and you look at this context again, what is the context of worship? How will I know if I've worshiped the Lord or not? Again, they're shouting with loud voices. They're praising him, Hosanna. They're adoring him and worshiping him. Worship is taking place. The Pharisees say, would you tell your disciples to be quiet? They're too loud. And then Jesus has this conversation with them, and he says this. He said and answered, I tell you, if they are silent, if the disciples stop worshiping me with their lips and their hearts, then these very stones will cry out, they're going to worship me. Now, here is an actual stone from the Mount of Olives. 
When I was in Israel, I wanted to make sure I got a stone from there because I never want this rock, I never want pews, I never want anything else to take my place. I want to make sure with a loud voice and with a surrendered heart that my worship is everything that God wants it to be. May the stones and the pews never take your place and my place. And Jesus says to those Pharisees that day, hey, if they're quiet, these very stones are going to cry out. They're going to praise me. You can't stop worship. He is still seeking worshipers. Now, here's the big question. How will you and I know if we have worshiped or not? You may look at it and say, well, I'll say this. I, I, I stayed for the entire service. I even sat through the invitation. I didn't leave early. You may say, you know, I gave an offering. I put it in the tithe boxes out in the concourse or I gave online. Uh, you may say, you know, I, I, I like the service today. I left feeling good because did some wonderful songs. Finally, he got the sermon length right. So, so it was a good day. I left feeling good. But please understand, one of the greatest indications of worship is obedience. That you leave, you log off, or you walk out of a sanctuary saying, God, today, my desire is to be obedient to you. You have spoken into my life, and I want to be obedient to you. Out of obedience should at times be a sign of brokenness. I just encourage you and me, and this is a bold prayer, this is a big ask, that you and I in life would come to places in worship and say, God, rather than simply walking out saying we feel good, God, we want to walk out broken because we know there is a great work to be done. Ask God to break you and me in life. You say, well, what is he going to break me about? I want to give you these words. Number one is our complacency. If you and I are not careful, there are times in the Christian life we can become very complacent in the Christian life. And I would just encourage you and me, ask God to break us about our complacency, meaning God, break me for lost people, people who don't know you, people who if they died today would spend eternity separated from you. Break me for lost people, family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, people you meet in life outside of Christ. God, give us a brokenness for people who need Jesus in life, our complacency. Number two is our church. And let me be quick to say, we're seeing God do some great and amazing things in the fellowship of our church. But please understand, church, we have not arrived yet. There is still kingdom work to be done. Ask God to break us as a church that his agenda would be our agenda. Number three is our city. We live in an incredible city, voted to be one of the best cities to live in in the nation. But as you and I think about our city, there is still lostness, there's violence, there's crime. Our city needs Jesus. Maybe where you're watching from, your city needs Jesus as well. Ask him to break you for your city where you live and for our city. Number four is our country. Ask God to break us for our country. We live in a country that is going down a dangerous road spiritually. We need to ask God to break us for our nation. God, we need revival and spiritual awakening like never, never before. Break us for our country spiritually that we would see an incredible move of your spirit. And then I want to give you another. It's not necessarily on the outline, but I just want to give you, ask him to break us for our convention, the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to gather in Nashville, Tennessee here in a few months. We need the touch of God on our convention. Ask God to break us for our convention that we would be unified and aligned about the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ as a convention. What's he doing? He's still calling people. He's still seeking worshipers. And then number three, he is still opening eyes. Jesus is still doing that. Now, I'll never forget. 
March 23rd of that particular year, I'd been invited to go to Augusta, Georgia and play golf where the Masters is played at. I never dreamt I'd ever have that opportunity. And when we were driving down Washington Road, we took a left and we turned on the Magnolia Lane. Look at this picture. That is the first thing I saw that morning of March 23rd. It was an incredible sight to see Magnolia Lane with my own eyes. I saw that. Uh, here's another picture. Uh, I never dreamt I'd be able to go to the Holy Land in life. Always saw pictures of it. But here's a picture. I'll never forget the day I saw the Sea of Galilee for the first time in my life. One of my favorite places on the planet is the Sea of Galilee. I saw that with my own eyes. I could literally look at that for hours upon hours. So much of Jesus' life and ministry happened around this body of water. Angie and I will never forget the first time we walked into this sanctuary and we saw it with our own eyes. Friday night, we sat right over there on the steps and had a conversation with the search committee. We came to this very place where I'm standing at. We got on our knees and our faces and prayed together, seeking the will of God. But we'll never forget seeing this room for the first time. But let me ask you this day as you and I worship together, what is the Lord opening our eyes to see? Does he want us to see him? Absolutely he does. Does he want us to see some truth in the pages of God's word? Absolutely he does. Does he want us to see our own sin? Yes, he does. Does he want us to see other people through the lens of the gospel? Absolutely he does. He is opening our eyes to see. Now understand in this context, two things. What the disciples were able to see what? All the mighty works that he had done. He opened their eyes to see the greatness of him, but what he did. And then as Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem, the Bible says when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem, the lostness, the brokenness, the emptiness, and he wept over that city. He saw that with his own eyes. He's opening our eyes as well. Now, what does he want us to see? And I'm going to give you these four words. Here's what he wants us to see. There could be many more than these. But for the sake of time, I want to give you these four. Number one is growth. He wants us to see growth. In Hebrews chapter 5, uh, we understand this principle here because he says to him, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, the word of God. What he's saying to them, I want you to see the lack of growth in your spiritual lives. You should have grown in your relationship. So let me ask you, when you look at your life and you know Christ, do you see growth or do you see a lack of growth? There should be evidence that you're saved, but there also should be evidence that you're growing as a believer in Christ. He wants you to see growth. Second word is grace. He wants you to see grace. Barnabas goes down to Antioch in Acts chapter 11, and the Bible says there, in fact, he saw the grace of God. He saw God's amazing grace at work among the people. What does that mean for us? How do you and I see the grace of God? Here's how. When someone gives his or her life to Jesus and follows him in believer's baptism, that is seeing the grace of God because you're saved by grace. When we look around in our church and we see an army of people serving the Lord Jesus Christ, doing ministry, we see the grace of God at work. Why? You can only serve the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace. When we see people in our lives, in our church family, battling cancer, adversity, dysfunction in relationships, and they still have their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the grace of God. What did the Lord say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. You can only thrive in very difficult circumstances because of the grace of God. He wants us to see grace in life. His grace is still amazing. Number three, he wants us to see generosity. 
As you and I think about who God is, is he generous or stingy? John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. He is a generous heavenly father. When he looks at our lives and others look at our lives, they should see generosity. Our bank statements should shout generosity. Our calendars should say generosity. Our last wills and testaments should speak of generosity. You know, I want to be a romantic guy with Angie. So a couple of Valentines ago, I don't know what you did on Valentine's Day, but that Valentine's Day, Angie and I met with our attorney and we signed the papers of our last will and testament. That's pretty romantic, I would think. But understand this, when we did that though, we want to be faithful givers week in and week out. But even our last will and testament, we wanted to shout generosity because God is generous and he wants us to be generous. You should see generosity in your life. Number four is glory. When I think about that, I think about uh, the book of Exodus, Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Moses just prayed this prayer, God, show us your glory. What brings God glory is his work. You and I should glorify him because he's working in us. And then in Exodus 34, Moses is on his face before God because God has revealed his glory to him. Let's make sure we cry out and say, God, we desire to see your glory. Now, let me ask you, wherever you are around the world as you worship with us and watch with us, Jesus is still calling people. How's he calling you? Who's he calling you to be? What's he calling you to do? Salvation? Discipleship? Ministry? Church affiliation? What is he calling you to do and who's he calling you to be? Worship. Are you worshiping him in ways that are pleasing unto him? Don't let a stone or a pew, or some other object, take your place. Be the worshiper God wants you to be. Don't let this stone do that. Cry out to him. Praise him with a loud voice. Shout hallelujah to him. Why? Because he is worthy to be worshiped. And then is he opening your eyes? What do you see? Do you see Jesus, his sacrifice, his victory? Do you see your own sin? Do you see your need for Christ? Do you see the work of God in your life? Do you see grace in your life? He's calling you, he wants you to worship him, and he's opening your eyes. So here's what we want to encourage you to do. Jesus invited people to make decisions. We encourage you, if he's calling you, obey him. Worship him. Let him open your eyes. You obey. You comment to us. You email us. We love to help you and minister to you and help you follow his call, be the worshiper he wants you to be, and have your eyes to see what he wants you to see. A noble animal. He borrowed, but he gave it back. It was a life-changing event on the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love and adore you. Thank you for calling us. You're worthy to be worshipped. Thank you for opening our eyes and help us to be obedient today. And Father, help us to celebrate and help people as they make spiritual decisions today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.